What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, let's get to the news of the day. It comes out of Washington, D.C., of course. Uh, Former President Trump charged over secret documents in which is a first for an ex-president. We want to roundtable this thing. Uh, we're going to do that today with Bloomberg Law host June Grasso. She's going to join us here in the studio. And Anne-Marie Hordern, Bloomberg Washington correspondent, usually in D.C., up here in New York at our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. We, we appreciate getting both uh, June and Anne-Marie here. Anne-Marie, let's start with you. This feels different. I mean, it's federal. Is, can you put it in context? What's the feeling coming out of Washington, D.C.? Well, this is definitely different. First former U.S. president to be charged with committing federal crimes. Uh, this is a case that even Trump's own attorney general, Bill Barr, has talked about for months, really, that this is going to be the more serious of the case. Also said it was almost one of Trump's own making. He said yeah. recently on CBS This Morning, he was there two days ago, he said Trump was the one there, his words, jerking around the DOJ when he could have just given up these documents that the National Archives wanted. Um, And then you look at, and June definitely will be able to speak to this more, the indictment, what we're seeing so far, obviously it's under seal, that could be made public today though. Um, It contains these seven charges and some of them would normally carry, I don't think anyone actually thinks that we're going to see the president behind bars for a decade, but some of them carry potential um, consequences of 10 or 20 years behind prison. So June, I want to bring you into the conversation. Break down more specifically what these charges are. Well, and just a reminder that we don't know what the charges are specifically. This is all based on sourcing. This has been under seal, and it may not be opened until actually until Tuesday when he reports to the court, but it may be open sooner. So there are several, seven charges. They include willful retention of national defense information, corruptly concealing documents, conspiracy to obstruct justice, and making false statements. The conspiracy charge is particularly interesting to me because it means that there was someone else. There has to be two people involved in a conspiracy. So so the prosecutors have someone else who they're either going to charge or who is going to testify against Trump. And one of the possible people, when you think about the evidence that they have, they don't only have people, they have video and audio evidence. And part of the video evidence is a man moving boxes into a storage, boxes of documents into the storage space at Mar-a-Lago the day before the prosecutors were set to arrive there. So they have lots of evidence. They also have what's kind of incredible, they have an audio tape of Trump at his Bedminster uh, golf club waving a document around and saying that it was uh, a document 
with sensitive military information related to Iran in his possession, and he says that he knows, according to a transcript, he knows that he doesn't have the authority mm. to show this. So they have lots and lots of evidence. Hey, June, I just want to, we got a, one little piece of news that's starting, and we, I guess it's just going to come out in drips and drabs, but U.S. Judge Aileen Cannon um, has been assigned to the criminal case, and I believe she is a Trump appointee. What does that mean to you? When I was thinking of of why they moved the case and the pros and cons of moving the case to Florida, I thought, wow, I hope they don't get Judge Eileen Cannon because it's not just that she's a Trump appointee. It's that she was the one appointed to be a special master to review the material seized from Mar-a-Lago. And she gave some... I don't know, head-scratching decisions that people were sort of shocked by. And one of them, which prevented the FBI from using the seized classified documents as part of their investigation until she completed her review, which could take months. And that was ultimately thrown out. She was reversed by the 11th Circuit, and there was some sharp language in there about her. So she's in it for this initial part. If she stays on it, I think the Justice Department will have uh, some problems. Anne-Marie, want to bring you back into this conversation. How does all of this end up impacting his campaign if he's under indictment once again? Yeah, it's going to be an even more wild ride, it feels like, for the 2024 campaign. So initially with the former president, anytime he he faces a struggle, a legal hurdle. His numbers go up in the polls and also his campaign dollars go up. There's a big question about this specifically because of how serious these charges are and potentially how the other candidates, now it's much wider field in terms of Republican nominations, how they react. Um, what you already are seeing is I think one individual only came out and said they would pardon the former president, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, came out and said that's what he would do. And then others are taking a more moderate tone. Chris Christie, we know that he's mm-hmm. almost running this race to just bash Trump, but he did say, let's see the facts. I think all candidates will come out and say they're presumed innocent, like all def- uh, defendants, but a big question and a litmus test for every nominee now, every question they're going to get, whether they show up in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, is will you pardon the former tre- president? Uh, okay. Um, and that's going to now shape, I, I think, a lot of, of the Republican field. June, can you give us, I, I know we haven't even seen the indictment, but on these types of cases, a sense of timing, how does this play out? And just to follow on Anne-Marie's comments about the election is this a, things, a six-month process, a 12-month process, a multi-year process? Uh, it's not multi-year. And, I mean, it depends on how how many motions there are before. How I, mean, I assume the Trump team is going to try to slow the process down with motions. Now, what's interesting is what the prosecution did here in order to prevent some of the most weighty motions, which would be a motion to change venue, they decided to go from Washington, D.C., where the grand jury was hearing evidence for months, to Florida, so that the the defense wouldn't be able to raise that as a reason to slow things down, throw the case out, and, and move it somewhere else. But, I mean, it could come before the before the election there's no doubt that it could there's also a uh the other case in new york which has which is i think supposed to go march but and then you have in july in july or august you have the district attorney in fulton county going to announce possible charges against trump so you're going to have all these judges you know jockeying and trying to figure out when they could have a trial so but it could happen before 
before the election for sure. Anne-Marie, any sort of indication from your sources about what the chances are for an actual conviction on this? No, I don't think we're even, even close, close to, to that point. Yeah. There's one I think interesting recall, uh, wrinkle, and June can definitely speak to this, is I think everyone going into this thought it was going to be in Washington, in Washington, D.C. And this is almost a coup for the former president that it's happening in Florida. This is his home turf. Yep. He has tremendous amount of support in Florida. Um, he won that state. And I think if it was going to, uh, the trial was going to be, and the case was going to be conducted out of Washington, his team had already said they would try to move it to Florida. And already they're, already it's starting in Florida. Hmm. June, actually, I wonder, do you think that them coming out and moving it to Florida helps the former president? Or because they wanted to motion to move it, it actually takes one of their tools out of the toolbox. Well, it, it's sort of a double-edged sword because it takes one of the tools out of their toolbox, which would slow things down. But at the same time, it puts him in a really favorable venue. Um, you know, as you said, Floridians voted for voted for Trump, and you know he. But he will not be able to say the things he said about the New York jury during mm -hmm. the Eugene Carroll trial. How they were all against him, and he'll take that will take his that talking point away. But yeah, I think it's I think it was a, a calculated move by the prosecutors. They want to move the case along, so they want to avoid that venue challenge. But at the same time, the jury pool is not going to be as favorable to them. I think, although they are in Miami, so. Yep. But it could different. potentially move to West Palm Beach. Yes, it could. It could. This is really? all up in well, the who, air. Who decides that? Um, well, there, there might be motions uh, by the defense to, to move it. And right now, I'm, you know, I'm not too sure where the Judge Cannon is. Is she in... Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure because we just found out about yes, her a few minutes ago. So, <laughs> so this is moving so quickly. Yep. But you know, there could be a motion to move it, or they could just decide that that's a better venue for it because that's where Mar-a-Lago is. So, <laughs> so Anne Marie, what have we heard, if anything, from the Biden administration? What do we expect to hear from the Biden administration? How do we think they're going to play this whole thing? So Biden was asked about this yesterday. He was giving a press conference with Rishi Sunak of the UK. And of course, reporters always want to ask about the hot story <laughs> of the day. And he dismissed any of these suggestions that a potential indictment of the former president uh, would potentially be politically motivated because that's what the Republicans are really going to want to coalesce around this message. And you've already seen um, some conservative networks and news saying it's Biden's DOJ going after the former president. So Biden said, you'll notice I have never once, one single time suggested the Justice Department what they should do or not do relative to bring in charge or not bring a charge. He said, I'm honest. We also need to remember the the current president is also uh, facing a special counsel mm -hmm. um, inquiry into his documents. That's still <laughs> pending. But Vice uh, President Mike Pence, former vice president, his was actually concluded. Um, there's very different. You could draw a lot of parallels because everyone has these documents at home. But there's very yeah. different cases. I think it, Biden and Pence really wanted to get rid of them while many were saying Trump <laughs> wanted to and, keep them. And what the what as as she said, what the Trump people have been saying, what Trump has been saying, this prosecution is by the Biden administration. All these different things about uh, the witch hunt. That's 
going to play. That's for the court of public opinion. That's for the jury pool that's out there. But that is not going to happen in court. As we've seen case after yep. case, those kinds of discussions just don't take place and don't All have right. any effect. We're going to be talking to you, June, a lot, I think, over the coming <laughs> days, weeks, and months. All right, I want to thank uh, Bloomberg Law host June Grasso uh, and Bloomberg Washington correspondent Anne-Marie Hordern, uh, both here in our studio, starting to get some initial analysis on what is going to be a, a very complex uh, case here. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go right to the bond market. And why not? Because, again, I've been saying you can, after 2022, Jess, when you got crushed in equities, crushed in bonds, 4.6% in a two-year bond seems pretty good to me for the treasury market it definitely is especially <laughs> after the pain last year and looking exactly. ahead to next week's fed meeting look at these swap traders pricing in a roughly one-third chance that we're going to see a fed hike next week yeah absolutely so that'll be uh top of mind next week and we'll have full coverage of that let's check in with natalie trevithick she's head of investment grade credit strategy at payden and, and regal so natalie what do you think about my trade i'm just going to go put some money in, in the two-year treasury note I think that's a great trade, Paul, but I uh, advise even going into corporate bond, you get five and a half percent. So it's worth that minimal uh, incremental risk to go into corporates. So, Natalie, what is the bond market telling us about the direction of the economy at this point and what it can mean for the Fed decision next week? I think it's telling us that we're in pretty good shape. We've seen a pretty big rally in corporate bonds are almost back to the levels they were at the beginning of the year, pre the banking crisis. And we've seen a big recovery in both banking spreads and equities, particularly among the regionals, that gives us some confidence. So in the investment grade space, Natalie, kind of how are you thinking about things? Are you going sector by sector? Are you focusing more on duration? How are you guys approaching the investment grade space these days? Yeah, it's a number of items, uh, definitely duration. We're seeing more demand for the long end of the curve, even though those, the front end, as you mentioned, is very attractive. We aren't sure how long it's going to last for. So investors really want to lock in these 10 and 30 year yields at these higher levels. And with corporate bond, you're getting close to 6% there. Among sectors, we do like communications, technology. Uh, we think banking has a little bit more to run, particularly in some of the regionals. And those are most attractive in the front end of the, in, of the curve. What are you hearing from clients at this point as far as what their concerns are and maybe concerns maybe they had at the beginning of the year, not so much at this point? Yeah, the concerns at the beginning of the year was the recession and they were already pricing in Fed cuts. And that's not going to be the case, we don't think. Right now, they're concerned about all of this uh, Treasury supply we're likely to get post the de debt ceiling resolution. People are talking anywhere from $500 billion to a trillion of T-bill supply this summer. And they're worried that may crowd out investments in other places, such as corporate bonds. So, Natalie, one of the, the challenges for investors is trying to get a sense of where this economy really is going. So, you know, when your analysts come to you or your PMs come to you with an idea, do you ask them, hey, have you run your recession model? And if so, how does this, this credit fare? Are you, is that top of mind for you guys? 
Exactly. Even though recession may still be, you know, six months to a year out, if it does come, we are definitely running our recession models. How are these companies going to do? Fortunately, most companies have been well prepared. This is the most uh, well-telegraphed recession potentially coming. So they have started already to cut their capex or cut dividends or share buybacks where necessary. So many companies are defensively positioned. We've actually seen a number of upgrades back to investment grade from high yield this year, such as Occidental Petroleum recently. When it comes to this concern about how the U.S. debt deal would potentially trigger this $1 trillion liquidity crunch, especially when we're looking at what's happening in the bond market, what's your take on that? I think it may be overblown because globally, uh, investors are still flush with cash. We see that in the corporate market where the deals are like five times subscribed. Yesterday, we had U.S. Bank Corp in the market with three and a half billion, um, and they actually had 18 billion of demand for that deal. So it seems like the market will be able to absorb all of this uh, T-bill issuance. Yeah, it's kind of where I wanted to go, Natalie. It's kind of the new issue market. As a former banker myself, I always like to see deals, the deal flow and, and who's coming to market and what kind of pricing they're getting. So. You know, even though rates are higher, it seems like new issuance is still pretty active. Is your phone ringing off the hook from our friends on Wall Street? Yeah, absolutely. The new issue market has been very active. First, there was a surge of issuance trying to get ahead of the debt ceiling, and the banks were kind of locked out of the market for a little while there in March and April. Now that the debt ceiling is over, we've seen banks come back with huge issuance, $27 billion this week, though they're still about 40% under the rate of issuance they had in 2022. So we still expect to see a lot more supply, but now that regionals have been able to access the markets this week, we think smaller regionals will start to come. And how about the, when you see some of these new deals, are they investor friendly in the sense that the, some strong covenants in there, or do you get a sense that it's more the the leverage is on, on a part of the issue? Where are we in the market right now? Yeah, in investment grade, there's generally not that strong covenants, but we are seeing investors push back on the high yield market to make sure the covenants are a little bit stronger here. We are seeing better concessions, though, in terms of pricing, and they're leaving a little bit on the table so that these deals perform in the secondary market. I have to ask you about the yield curve. What do you think this is telling us about the economy? Yeah, it's not a good sign. It's definitely a recession indicator, even though we aren't as inverted as we were in two tens previously. But I also think, uh, you know, that the Fed's going to leave rates higher for longer, probably until 2024. And there is always the risk that the Fed may have broken something. And we really haven't had a long enough of a timeline to see all of these uh, uh factions take place in the marketplace. The Silicon Valley bank failure was definitely one indication that the Fed may have gone too far. Natalie, do you guys invest solely in the U.S. or do you go outside of the U.S. as well? No, we invest globally, lots of emerging markets. We have a very dedicated team here on that. All right, so let, let, let's go there a little bit. Um, when you think outside of the U.S. borders, kind of how do you kind of prioritize where, where you guys are looking? Uh, we're looking at uh, countries with stable governments. We're also looking at oil importers versus oil exporters. Uh, we're following the uh, election cycle, which is going on. So it's really bifurcated across markets. And when you're talking about exporters versus importers for crude and things like that, is it obviously that correlation with what we've seen, especially with oil prices in the U.S. Uh, treading around when you're thinking about that sort of $70 threshold there and what that could mean for the opportunities in those particular emerging markets? 
Exactly. And we do think $70 is close to a floor, so we aren't foreseeing a crash in oil. So we think demand is likely going to uh, uh, hold up fairly well, but it also depends on the depth of the recession if we get one. So when you think about emerging markets, I'm not, and this is equities, it's, it's, it's credit, it's, you know, you think about China, it's such a big part of the MSCI. I mean, is there, how do you think about emerging markets? Where, where, where do you find opportunities? Do you even think about China or do you kind of stay a little bit more close to home? Yeah, China's a pretty bifurcated market because there's a very high quality end of the spectrum where you have such as the Alibaba's and Tencent, good investment grade credits. And then you have the Chinese property market, which we're still a little bit cautious on. So it really starts to get down to a name by name basis, even within these emerging markets. Something I wanted to get your take on, because we're going to get another update on the CFTC data this afternoon around 3.30. And I noticed, particularly in the bond market, when it comes to the shorting that's happening on the U.S. 10-year, it's at a very extreme position. And usually that happens when investors are thinking that yields potentially betting that they would go higher. But such extreme positioning, when I've talked to some sources, think that might have the opposite effect and end up pushing yields lower and then maybe supporting more equity prices. Why do you think we're seeing such extreme shorting happening on the 10-year right now? Yeah, it's a bit of a mystery. I think there's all this positioning and jockeying ahead of the Fed meeting, but it does seem that like post these Fed decisions, uh, sometimes the bond market moves in opposite directions than what you would expect by the statements. And some of that's driven by the short positioning being offset afterwards. All right, you know, Natalie, for me, next Wednesday is flag day. But for others <laughs> in the market, yeah. it's, it's Fed day. What is your Federal Reserve going to do, do you think? It's pausing, but we think there's a strong likelihood they may go one or two more times. So the July meeting is very active. All right, Natalie, thank you so much. We appreciate that. Natalie Trevithick, Head of Investment Grade Credit Strategy uh, at Payton and Regal. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Yeah, you're darn right. Focus on Muni's is brought to you by The New Deal which created American infrastructure that unleashed a new opportunity. Today, we're doing it again with massive investment in modernizing our infrastructure and municipal bonds backed by Build America Mutual. They help make it happen. Invest in the future of America with BAM insured bonds. That, I did my best. It's not nearly as good as, uh, as Matt. Matt Miller, but you know he was just walking by and he knows it's Thursday. He knows it's 1109. Friday. Uh, Friday. <laughs> he knows it's 1109 and uh, he jumps right in because he knows that's time for munis. Joe Mysek joins us here in, sure. in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. He is the head of all our municipal research. Joe, what's happening out there? We got rates moving higher. What's going on in the world of municipal bonds? You know, we have a lot of stuff, but the biggest news I think this week was we uh, snapped the 16 week streak of outflows outflows into municipal outflows from municipal bond funds we saw 460 million come in this week what was the catalyst there we're getting higher yields mm. we're getting this this higher coupons out there there's also let's face it the relief from the uh, you know the debt limit you know being passed uh, so there there is that very much uh, that you know, things are, it looks like things are, there's more, it's more constructive as the <laughs> analysts would why, say. Why, why were there so many weeks of outflows? Oh, you know, there was everything to worry about. First of all, you have the Fed and 
there still is uncertainty about the Fed because, you know, we're carrying stories about, you know, the Fed is probably going to, you know, pause next week. Well, perhaps not. (laughs) So there's still a lot of uncertainty uh, in that area. Uh, And that's that was the biggest reason for the outflows. There was also, uh, you know, the the debt limit's been hanging over the market now for probably a month and a half, two months. Uh, so, you know, between those two things, that's why people were clearing out. And, you know, two, we had, uh, you know, you were getting loads of deals priced with two, three percent, four percent coupons. Not exactly uh, enticing. But now fives, five and a halves, we're kind of back to really? the uh, formula of uh, and higher. Uh, well, I got to call my guys. We're kind of New, back New Jersey's to, coming out with any stuff with that kind of coupon. I'm jumping back in the market. Oh yeah, but but now you know five percent coupons and and uh, you know we're in. Uh, you know I want to say it's a it's a better place. Plus, you know right now very little volume in our market. You know we, I think we're down. We're, we're about 150 billion, which is off about 20 percent. And if you're talking about Number of issues are probably off 30%. So there's not exactly a lot of uh, of pressure. Is that because rates have gone up and issuers don't want to sell at those high rates? Yeah. But I thought thought the issuers, you've always told us, they don't care what they got to pay. Well, they they don't. If they have to come to market, they'll come to market. But so many of them don't have to come to market because the... They, a lot of them still have the COVID relief money or a portion of it that still hasn't all been uh, allocated. So what about when we were talking about SVB and when it came to that $7 billion muni portfolio seen as basically requiring this sort of deep concession? What's happening with that? Well, uh, I think it was BlackRock is, is, running, the, uh, is running the municipal bond uh, auctions. And I know they've sold off a good portion of that already but they're not gonna you know it's they're gonna dole it out a little at a time you don't uh you don't just say all at once oh here you go mini market here's you know these billions for you no it's a little bit we'll dole it out that way uh but you know as we quoted an analyst this week saying uh you know the banks were really caught holding a lot of low coupon stuff you know to two percent three percent and all that took a big hit uh with the fed you know making its move the last couple of years all right let's talk one of my favorite topics which is las vegas professional sports teams have been flocking there over the last several years first we had the hockey team i can't even think they were aren't they in the finals i think i don't know um (laughs) and then um i watch football and then football there uh the raiders and now the oakland a's are coming now they need a stadium Joe, and I'm just guessing that this is going to require a little bit of public financing. Oh, yeah. We have at least uh, $380 million in various subsidies and uh, tax breaks and infrastructure construction um, that are rolled in there. And it's uh, the total, I think, is a $1.5 billion stadium, we've wow. been calling it. And uh, this week, we had Max Adler write about the uh, Nevada lawmakers have been uh, called back into session, second special session, to uh, discuss the financing package for the A's. I, I am in no doubt that this is going to pass yeah, I mean, because Las Vegas is just such a, uh, a powerhouse in so many exactly. ways. They're printing money out there. I can't, ima- <laughs> I, I can't imagine this 
won't get approved. Right? There, no, I, I, yeah, this is this is this is going through. Any sort of timetable as far as when we could find out when that may happen? Oh, this is going to be, uh, you know, certainly within the next couple of weeks, mm. and then they, you know, set up the various parts of it, including the actual bond issue, which I know that Mr. Sweeney wants to get a part of. Totally. I mean, I'm just looking. I've been to a couple of Yankee games out in the Oakland Stadium. Um, Man, that thing is ancient. Yes. I mean, it is rough. And nobody goes to those games. It's not as bad as Tampa Bay, maybe, but boy, it is rough (laughs) out there. But And and it's for such a great city. It's just brutal. But I think we're finding out in that Bay Area market, it can't really support two franchises, whether it's football, whether it's baseball. um, That's what it looks like. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, you know, the Warriors, you know, they moved to a great new arena in downtown San Francisco, right by the water, right by the the Pac Bell Park, which is I'm not sure what it's called anymore, but so that's a great area downtown San Francisco. But it looks like you know the A's are going to Vegas, and the public's going to pay up a little bit here. Oh yeah, and uh, I think the, I, I bet you those bonds will be snapped up. Oh, easily. You know, in fact, I wrote about a a bond issue uh, out today, column out today, um, for the El Paso Chihuahuas. Sure. Oh, AAA. <laughs> El Paso Chihuahuas. Texas. Yes. <laughs> they, were, Texas. they were going into the action today, 15 games back in third place behind the Oklahoma City Dodgers. <laughs> so they're coming out with a, a bond to fund? They, yeah, they sold bonds uh, earlier on for huh. debt service savings. But could okay. you imagine, you know, you, you get your, you know, you're making your way up uh, in the minors and, and you get to say, I'm a Chihuahua. Chihuahua, El Paso, Texas. <laughs> All right, so how are the funds flows into Muni's? You talked about that, that we had some funds for the first time coming back in. Do you expect that to continue, or what are the folks in the market t- talking I to would, about? I would expect it uh, to be coming back in now. And, you know, as I say, you have higher yields. There's relief over the debt limit being passed. Uh, and, you know, you do have year-to-date, I know you're always asking yep. this, performance over 2%. Over 2%. So... <laughs> And yeah. that's, you know, and then you get the tax adjustment there. It's even uh, yes. a better, see? some good stuff so, there. So, yeah, I, so I would expect that we're going to see more uh, inflows. And there's nothing yeah. on the horizon. I mean, there's no big muni disaster on the horizon, you know, that would throw people off the game. All right, I'm going to call my guy to make sure he's on the lookout for some New Jersey munis. Uh, I like some of the coupons I'm hearing about. <laughs> exactly. Joe Mysick, guess what? what? No, that, that's it? That's it. Oh, Aww, The end of our time, time together for this week. Joe Mysick, he covers all things municipal bonds for Bloomberg uh, Briefs for our weekly update, which we always save for Friday the best. on the municipal bond market. Against a positive return uh, this year after 2022, where the whole fixed income space was just ravaged uh, in terms of negative performance. We're going to have more coming up. This is Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. You know, just when we want to talk about the worlds of technology and media coming together, 
We've got some good people to talk to. Uh, one Especially of our next guest. Exactly. Mark Dulgas, President and CEO of uh, Mountain, joins us here. Hey, Mark, I want to ask you about what to me has been one of the bigger news stories of this week, which is the merger of the PGA Tour and Live Golf. I mean, it just shocked the world of golf. It shocked the people who follow the business of golf. Uh, and I bet it was kind of a shock to some of their media partners as well. What's your take from your perspective and kind of the, the media slash tech zeitgeist? Yeah, so um, first thing I think, if you spend time in the Middle East, I, I coincidentally have been in Dubai for ten the last 10 days. And this part of the world is just absolutely booming. It started with Dubai. Um, I actually went to Doha, Qatar this yep. week, um, which is also you know, a much more traditional city than Qatar, but also booming. The people there are very happy. At least everyone I talked to was laughing and just, just really happy. And so it's very different on the ground than it than the image, I think, that folks have of the Middle East. And there's been a lot of evolution over the last two decades. And so Saudi Arabia is following that lead. All of a sudden, it's becoming kind of a, trying to become a tourism location. Obviously, I think for a lot of people in America, that's kind of like not the first place that comes to mind for go for where to go to vacation. But they, I think, are determined to spend literally hundreds of billions of dollars mm. Um, to you know, kind of adjust their culture, adjust their, their 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 image, and to make Saudi Arabia, along with Dubai, Qatar, and other cities, kind of an attractive place to go. And I think this deal, the reason I said all that, I think this deal is essentially a part of that. And in fact, the amount of money involved in a deal is almost like a rounding error in terms of yeah. the entire investment that they're determined. Like there are single buildings in Dubai that cost the value of this deal. So, yep. so, I mean, I think it's great for the game of golf, turning golf into a, you know, kind of more of a team sport, making the players be a little less prize oriented in terms of how they make money and more kind of salary plus bonus oriented. I think it's great for the players. And I think it's going to expand the game. It's going to take some time, but I think it's going to really turn this game into something that a lot of people see as a, a more serious sport for the people who are not currently followers of golf. What's the feeling? And, um, and, yeah. Well, what, what's, the, what's the feeling over there, Mark, um, from some of the negative response that uh, we've seen about just live golf in general, the, the role of the, of the Saudis in live golf and, and some of the feedback from even some big players like Roy McIlroy and, and those that didn't have not to date supported live. What's the feeling over there in the Middle East about that? Yeah, I think they I think they understand it, but they think that um, um, Americans are kind of looking in the past. Uh, you know, most of, like I said, the tourism here and the people you see are more from Europe. You don't really see a lot of American as many Americans walking yeah. around. So I think they their perspective is, look, we you know, we 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 blended our culture with Western culture and, and doing so, we've made ourselves way more attractive to Europe. And that will eventually happen to America as they as they, you know, like meet us as individuals and realize that we are very friendly to the to the rest of the world and not this kind of extremist um, image and, and actions, you know, you can't, that, that happened in the past. So, um, so I think they think 
time will will make this work and and they're patient they're they're ready to invest the time and the money to make it happen since you work in the advertising software type space what do you think a deal like this could mean particularly for advertisers moving forward yes well all the big money in sports actually comes from things like tv rights and when you talk to like some of the biggest agencies the biggest issue they always have is getting more sports content they want they, their advertisers want to advertise against more sports content so i'm talking like the wpps and group and and agent the big agency holding companies so you know the, the sport needs to kind of live up to the vision in this deal but i think people are very encouraged by one interesting thing and we've been playing with at Mountain, and this is almost like just an internal project. We look at a golf game and we look at, we go, look at all that advertising space. Like it's just all that green <laughs> on the screen. And we've, been, <laughs> and we've been playing with ads that just like, like show up on the, on the, on the lawn. Like just, <laughs> I think, so you, there's a lot of fun you can have with the technology, like by creating ad space. But I think people, anywhere you can get more sports content, content to advertise against, you're going to get enthusiasm from advertisers. And that is, you know, where the big, big money comes in sports is like the huge sports deals, especially if golf starts to become more of a team sport and less of a little less of an individual sport. Um, so to that end, I mean, you're tight with the advertising community, the tech community, the intersection of the, that type of thing. We had, are, are you surprised we haven't seen, you know, a, more, you know, a tech company of size jump into the deep end of the pool and really get into content. So, for example, you know, try to really bid for a major NFL package, a Sunday package or something like that. I think about like Amazon Prime, for example. You know, they've got a huge block of subscribers. They've they've got, you know, bottomless pit of, of, of money. Um, they're they're into the, you know, the, the content business, but one could argue they're not in, in commensurate size. How, how do you think about that? Yeah, I think the um, the economics on that are um, just not very attractive. I mean, it makes sense for the big content networks like an NBC and others to bid on things like the Olympics and to bid on, you know, kind of NFL and so forth. But I think it's much harder to get Netflix. I think Netflix is kind of one of the prime examples. They've never had sports to my knowledge. Any, right. Well, they, yeah, what, yeah. they've done an end around on sports. I just was on, I just literally logged into my Netflix account and they have like, they have Formula One, they, you know, an annual series. They right. now have one on um, bike racing, the, the Tour de France. And so they've come into it at much lower cost and ironically have helped expand those sports without having to commit literally billions of dollars to do it. I just don't think the economics fit the economics that tech companies typically love, which is very high margin with relatively low investment. So it's going to take some time before they jump into the content game where it's very high investment and arguably much, much lower margin to, to you know, high, much higher risk to get there. So the ad tier for Prime Video streaming service at Amazon, that's going to be tough. Yeah, I think Prime, that I don't think that's much of a news story. I mean, they're one of the last, the, the thing about Prime, the single biggest issue, and that this is coming directly from executives at Amazon, you know, in conversations I've had, the single biggest issue is most Prime subscribers don't know they have um, Prime Video. 
Right. They just literally don't know. They got they got Prime because they want faster shipping right. and free shipping on every order. They did, and then it's and so they their single biggest issue, like they the the um, Prime does advertise the advertisement sort of reminds you that you have access to Prime Video. <laughs> so I think <laughs> so it's kind of a very unique situation. And to a certain extent, I I think that them having an ad supported tier, maybe as much as like, you need your subscribers to put some skin in the game for the actual video. Like if you want them to know they have it, they have to maybe pay for it. <laughs> they, right. You know, I think that's what they're paying for. Um, so I think Prime is just a, you know, very unusual um, content um, source and, and Amazon clearly um, wants to offset some of the costs and, and get more like knowledgeable adoption of prime video as opposed to like this kind yeah, of currently mostly passive adoption of it. All right, Mark, always good to check in with you. Uh, we appreciate you making a time all the way from the Middle East. Mark Douglas, president and CEO of Mountain, uh, just talking about the confluence, continued confluence of uh, technology uh, and media. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.